0: to Design Conscious, a podcast exploring diversity and leadership in environmental sustainability in the built environment. My name is Sarah Lawler. I am a Sydney-based architect, and through this series, I speak to sustainability leaders working across a variety of different organisations related to the built environment, including design, construction, research and investment with an aim to learn about the impact of sustainability leadership. This podcast is supported by the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, awarded by NARWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which has facilitated this research into gender equity and diversity in sustainability leadership. Speaking with Claire Gallagher, Sustainability Manager at BILT, from their Sydney CBD office, so you may be able to hear the street sweepers go by in the background. Claire originally practised as an architect in Auckland and London before spending several years at the New Zealand Green Building Council while working on reducing environmental impact on an array of projects from rural schools to earthquake damaged churches built. She has worked on projects including Barrack Place in Sydney and WorkSafe in Geelong, which are both recognized by the industry as market-leading sustainable projects. Claire was recognized by the International Well Building Institute with a leadership recognition award, and in our conversation today, we discuss leadership designing for the end user and looking at contractors as an enabling middle link in the chain rather than a roadblock at the end. Hi Claire, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Great to be here. I thought I would start our conversation today by asking you a little bit about your journey so far. What led you to working in sustainability and can you tell me a little bit bit about your career leading up to your current role? Yes,
1: Um, I think I've always had a bit of a lean towards sustainability. Um, I started, I studied architecture and, but I think before that, back at, School, I was one of those like primary school students that hassled their parents about recycling, and um, it's been a, like something I've always felt um, a really deep uh, alignment with in terms of my values. So, um, in architecture, there was opportunity to get involved in that space. And um, in my first couple of first few offices I worked in, they had quite strong sustainability agendas and that was, I guess, the first strong introduction um, to how the built environment was dealing with sustainability. I then, I guess not every architecture office is like that, and started to feel like, okay, where can I have a, a even stronger impact? And that's when I moved to working at the New Zealand Green Building Council. So to me, that I'm from New Zealand, and that was the place where they were, they were setting the parameters for what sustainability would look like in the built environment. Um, and I spent four years, just about four years there. Um, and then I sort of got the, the feeling like I'd actually really like to be back on the project side where the action happens. And um, I wasn't just looking at working for a contractor, I was thinking about places where I saw the decisions being made. And so um, so I was looking at roles working either in development or um, I also, through um, a contract, got in touch with Built. And that, that idea of being on the contractor side started to really, really excite me, that that was, you know, where you're on a site and you're going to be making the last decision effectively um, in the chain of all the decisions get that get made in a in a um, development so I, I saw that as somewhere where I'd, I'd like to be and 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 make a change um, and have been at Bilt now for four years and I was put in touch with Bilt through a mutual contact and met who I Joe Carton who I work for now my manager here and got really excited about what the opportunity would be in construction to, to make changes and be the last link in the chain of all these sustainability decisions that get made and there was sort of – I think there had also been that feeling of sometimes, you know, contractors being the roadblock at the end and it sounded to me like like what we were going to work towards here was being the enabler at the end and making sure that those those beautiful aspirations that got set at the very beginning of a project were delivered and so um, and that's what we do and um, what continues to be a challenge because the aspirations just keep keeping higher and higher um, but it's a very, very fulfilling role to be there on site when things finally get done the way that you and everyone in the team hoped they would be.
0: You are now a Sustainability Manager at Build, and in 2018 won the Well Faculty Leadership Recognition Award. What does it mean for you to be a sustainability leader and how are you using your agency to affect change in that role?
1: So I think being a leader is looking for the opportunities that Maybe you know my my constant lens that I look through at every project through is what what can we do more sustainably or more you know to improve the health and well-being in the project. So I see it as my role to lead the team and understanding what those opportunities are, advocate for them so they understand why they're important, and sort of hand over that so that they also feel empowered to deliver them. and, not just working with the people that are directly within our business, but within with our clients, our consultants. Um, The nice thing about sustainability is it's an extremely collaborative um, pursuit. You can't be sort of one party doing it by yourself. It involves so many. So we foster very, I think part of that leadership is also to foster those relationships um, that are very collaborative and, um, we do a lot of sharing between not just um, with our consultants, other contractors, um, and and bring sort of a, a good sense of knowledge and understanding and why we want to do these things on a project to the to the team, and I think make it easy as well. So there's a there can be a lot of um, I think there's quite a high step to entry sometimes with sustainability, like. It, there's maybe a bit of jargon people don't understand in technical terms and so just that first little bit of engagement can sometimes be a barrier. And so part of being um, in the leadership role, I think, is to take that away as well and show that, you know, maybe you're already partway there and we can take it further. So pushing on every project to to make sure that that opportunity, that intervention, whatever involvement we're have we um, able to be a part of can be done in, a, in the most sustainable way.
0: I'd like to talk now about your experience in relation to female representation and diversity in leadership. Have there been any particular challenges or opportunities in your career that you have felt to be particularly significant in your leadership journey?
1: I'm not sure they relate to being female as much as it's just a challenge to be, I guess, as you grow in your career, to sort of become a leader. Um, And I think, working under people who are good leaders is one of the the best ways to learn there. So I think there's challenges uh, to me that some of the biggest challenges in my career have actually been when I've maybe been in a role where I have felt a little um, stifled or not like I haven't been trusted or empowered um, as as much in in roles where you've worked with someone who has kind of given you a little bit more latitude and and expected more from you that's been where you're, you're able to grow. So, um, and, and those challenges have kind of, I guess that's what led me to kind of transition from architecture to um, moving out of that industry in the first place was that I I did start feeling a little bit sort of stuck in a role and unable to to move in the direction that right. I thought was the right way for construction. And so the leadership side, I feel like that's been more something that you grow into as as you and as you get more experience and more confidence but the biggest challenges to it have been in jobs where i think um, i've maybe had not 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 been given um, as much empowerment and that's sort of been a bit of a, a knock to my confidence so um but I think those are the those are the challenges, and then when you're in a role where you do get a lot of opportunity and um, to, to maybe talk or be in, in new experiences, then you start to feel more confident in yourself. In terms of female representation, I think I've worked under males and females, but I, in sustainability, there's been a lot of female leaders, so there's always been people to kind of look to and. See in the very top roles in this industry, which I think is very, very helpful when you're sort of looking for maybe someone who might be you in 10 years or whatever it might be, that there there are examples of females in those top roles.
0: Absolutely. And I think um, that idea of having role models, but also just um, how you grow as a leader throughout your career, is very relatable in the experiences that you've had so far. Looking at sustainability leadership more broadly, how do you think the construction industry is tracking? Are we doing enough as an industry? And where do you think that we can improve?
1: I think, I mean, part of the attraction of moving to Australia for me when I was in New Zealand was that I saw so much leadership here. There are some big real estate investment trusts that are absolute world leaders in sustainability. And I also think there's really, really good... Adoption of new initiatives in Australia. So it was one of the biggest attractions. I sort of felt like I was in New Zealand, and it, yeah, there's there's things that they were that were going really, really well there. But um, I sort of looked over the Tasman and thought there's some very um, exciting opportunities in terms of the sophistication and where the market's at here, um, with tools like Neighbors having been in the market for so long. Um, really, really strong adoption of Green Star in the cities and the developments in terms of where it needs to go. I guess it just has to be more inclusive. So it's, I, I think that, that top end premium end of the market is so good at, at going for the very best. And while, you know, there's, there's some sort of ability for that information to be shared and kind of start to filter through to the um, maybe less sophisticated end of the market, I think we need more action there to, to help. Um, may, maybe the bars to entry are too high and it's too, it's too technical. And, and maybe there's also just not enough recognition of some of the simpler things that are being done um, at, at that end. So I think inclusivity is something that is worth uh, the industry looking towards in the future.
0: And what are some suggestions of the way that we could make the industry more inclusive to make sure that everyone is um, moving in that direction, and able to implement these sustainability practices? I think the more, so education is one way, but
1: that's quite formal. Sometimes it can be quite formal which is taking courses and things like that. I think the more that um, we talk about, how to make buildings sustainable and what that means and kind of um, more common language and conversations, the less it becomes a, a premium end topic. There's perhaps still a bit of a hangover that green is more expensive and um, I don't think that's the case. There's lots and lots of materials now that since you know they've been in the market for a really long time and they're um, very accessible. So it's maybe more um, that education on how to make those choices and um, what are the sort of imperatives with sustainability that that every level of construction can be engaging with and design. There's, there's been some very good studies done on what are the barriers to entering into sustainability um, for sort of B grade, say, and below buildings, and cost is always seen as one, but the other one is just that 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 gap of it being like what what is it, and I, I don't know. It it's like this little jump of. It just not being familiar and therefore slightly difficult and easy to say no to. So I think um, how we can bring more familiarity to the industry, and, and I think we can't underestimate how quickly that can happen. There's, you know, the, the, the big changes that have happened this year with regard to COVID and how we like have hand sanitizers everywhere now, and you can you can bring this stuff to the public. And make them more of a feature. I mean, another parallel might be asbestos, for instance. That's a completely toxic material, and you have to educate people about what is healthy and what isn't. And um, I think building materials can be a real black box, and there's a lot of a lot of materials that you know can cause all kinds of respiratory illnesses and headaches. And I still think that if there was more awareness around some of those um, issues. There might be a better um, public response to not using them or looking for alternatives. Um, And also just like maybe that whole wellness trend needs to be starting to think about our spaces that we inhabit a lot. We think a lot about the food that we eat and the fitness and um, we're not – perhaps as aware of the air that we breathe and how that is potentially the biggest impact of all in terms of our overall health and well-being. I don't think there's one way to get this in. I think it's lots of lots and lots and lots of different channels. And, like, I mean, the Green Building Council of Australia have sort of always had that approach too. It's the, the rate, advocate and educate. Um, I think that might still be there. There's three bottom lines, but um, you have you have to be looking at it from a few different directions.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an interesting parallel to draw. That um, you know, if environmental. Um, uh, outcomes and not um, driving enough incentive to implement some of these practices into buildings, then perhaps actually this um, idea of health and wellbeing can maybe um, assist in adding value and just help um, get some of those materials, more sustainable materials in buildings that has that dual impact of health and environmental sustainability as well. Mm. You are a member of the Responsible Construction Leadership Group and um, i'm interested to hear your reflections on responsibility you're now very much embedded in projects collaborating with architects consultants contractors can you talk a little little bit about the role that each party plays in affecting sustainable outcomes in the construction industry and projects
1: yes so starting with i guess us at the end of the chain i see it as our responsibility to To look at all the, as I said before, everything that's been set up by the consultants, the client, those goals and aspirations, and look for the pathway to deliver them without deteriorating them in any way. Actually, I said we're at the end, we're probably in the middle, because we hand over and then the building's going to be run for the rest of its life, and there's a massive amount of of impact there. So I think between each phase, there needs to be really good... um, education and handovers so there's a um like a concept of soft landings which we sometimes use which is about that kind of overlap and i guess soft landing so you're kind of educating the people that are going to operate the building and working with them in that first year or maybe two years of operation to make sure they understand how those systems work and um and and it's sort of checking in to make sure it is going to be It's been designed to be a high-performance space. Is it it going to be operated in that way? Um, So that's a really crucial transition. And I think the other part of that is not just the contractors being involved, but the people that designed the buildings, the consultants, understanding as well how that building is working and being able to bring that feedback into their new projects. At the front end, where you have a client that I think should should be ambitious and challenge their project team with with whatever targets they might want. And I don't I don't always think they have to be you know completely reasonable there. I think they should set the bar high if they feel like it and see what what response they get because um, we've seen I think some very good responses to quite challenging briefs. Um, and then with the consultants, it's it's about them bringing that amazing research that they might have within their business and. Um, the knowledge that they've learned from other, like they're, they're seeing a lot of different projects um, and bringing that smarts into the into the job. And we as builders, we've got, you know, it's design and build, so we're in not just to build it but to help with design. But I think um, we we definitely look to consultants for the real leading edge of what might be coming up and, and might be possible and then we're there to kind of test whether that can be built and, and run into the future and, and operated successfully. Um, like I think there's every, every single party in a, in a building really has a big role to play in sustainability and um, it's not something that just, you know, your, your sustainability consultant can set up some matrix of what we're going to do and, and be left at that. The best results are when you've got really, really engaged clients, tenants. Um, It's
0: a real all-in affair, for sure. Absolutely, and you've highlighted that I really left some um, key people out of that um, question, being the clients and the end users. So um, they are certainly... Yeah, hugely important of course in that process. Um, you worked at the New Zealand Green Building Council as you said earlier and you're now very much embedded in the market. You've mentioned this perception of a hangover that green is more expensive. Um, can you reflect on the effectiveness and balance between market-driven and regulation-driven mechanisms in changing sustainability practices in the construction and property industry? I
1: think Neighbours is the best example of great regulation-driven change. They have year-on-year year driven more efficiency in energy in buildings, well, in office buildings um, particularly. Carlos Flores, who's director at Neighbours, recently posted a graph just showing that it's significantly reducing each year. It's very, very impressive. And what I think is really successful about Neighbours is, one, it's simple, it's cheap, it's got really not a barrier to entry. You can have a zero star Neighbours rating, so you don't have to get to to four to to have it. Um, But if you're asking your facilities manager to measure something each year and report on it, someone's going to look at it and wonder why that number is what it is and is it worse than last year? Is it better than last year? Like you can start to sort of think about something that um, might be able to improve in your building and maybe it was just one of those things that if you're not looking at it, you're not thinking about it, it, it's like it doesn't exist because you can't see it. It's a power bill and maybe there's this, I guess, acceptance that the power is what it is um, and you've maybe done what you can. when. If you're looking at your neighbour's rating and you're at two star, and you're like, well, other buildings around me are getting four. Like, why are they Why are they different? What have they got? There's also um, financial incentive there to, to be better. So that is, I think, the real success story of um, a good regulation-driven market change. I think when you look at other kinds of rating tools – they're more ambitious than neighbours, so they're looking holistically not just at energy, but health and well-being, and water, materials, like many, many other facets of um, what goes into a building and what makes it sustainable and where the issues are that need to be addressed. So that's a more complex system to try and bring into kind of a regulatory environment, I think. Where that's been attempted before, there's been lots and lots of pushback from it, um, industry and people that don't think, you know, they take issue with certain elements of it, feel like it's too much. So I think that's um, that why it's sort of stayed in more of the market-driven space and in competitive areas. So when you look at CBDs, it's very, very um, well adopted, and I think it just sort of fizzles out a little bit as you as you get away from, from those CBD areas where they need those ratings to be competitive or maybe they're trying to have them so that um, they can interest buyers that want to report their portfolios and, and need to have rated buildings and want to be measuring um, their buildings' performance and not just in energy but in all aspects to other things. And I think that's where some of the market movements have shown to be very, very... Uh, impactful as well so these sort of real estate investment trusts that are reporting into the global real estate sustainability benchmark or um, subscribing to the principles for responsible investment are very keenly interested in sustainability ratings because that's something they can report into those benchmarks so that that sort of drives it from the, the when you're developing a building you're thinking who might want to buy it in the future and you know, I, I don't want to count myself out of anything by not being able to offer the the potential buyer the, the ratings they want. So that, I think that's quite a big driver. Um, and on the other hand, when you're going for a building that you're going to lease, then you also maybe want to, to hedge your bets there that you might have a tenant that wants um, sustainability ratings. And so there's perhaps what could drive that more is maybe if there was more awareness of tenant demand for those ratings because I think if you know and you're in that market, then you know that that's what some tenants are looking for. Um, and if you're not, maybe you don't realise it's something that, that they're looking or, or might count you out of being a potential space for a client.
0: Great answer. And I hope that we do start to see um, yeah, some of that market-driven um Change where yeah the end users are really valuing these things and actually demanding it out of um, out of the construction stage. Changing topic a little bit now. You are on the human rights expert reference panel for the Green Building Council of Australia. Can you talk a, a little bit about this overlap between environmental sustainability and human rights? Yes.
1: So this area of green star future focus was called the human rights panel it it actually was it was kind of like the people category of green star so we were looking at the interface not just at some things that were very clearly human rights like diversity for instance and how your design uh, addresses that in terms of maybe accessibility and and other design elements but also The other interfaces in terms of privacy. There's a lot more, I mean, we're putting in now the details and QR codes when we go into buildings now, so it was rights around that sort of technology interface with buildings and what information we're sharing with them. Um, And then also looking at how your building contributes to the community it's in. Um, or if it does at all. I mean, this is a, a rating tool where you can pick and choose which things you want to go for. So sometimes these things are there, as, and I, I think they work very effectively as a as a way to say, this is something you could do that we value. Maybe you haven't thought about it, but you could. So um, how you might think about how your building could, could become a more valued part of the community that it's in and whether that's by treating the ground level differently, maybe more of a public space than a private space and encouraging people to to be there. Um, So it was was looking at all of those different elements and it's not out yet. I think they're hoping to release it by the end of this year and I haven't seen the final version. So I'm quite excited to see how that will look because in projects where... Um, for an example, at Barrett Place in Sydney, which we recently worked on, that was an 80s building that got knocked down, and it was very much like, this is a private building, and here is the, the closed-up, you know, door that you can come in to if you work here. And what has been built there, and this is to the architect's credit, not mine, but they've built, like, big, beautiful carriageways that go through the space from one road to the other. And it's it's become, a, like, a, it's almost like, it's always been there, and it's a real part of the, the streetscape and community now. And, and and as a human right, I guess that's – maybe it's a little tenuous thread, but like what, we, what we're what we thinking about is this is the city that the people are walking through and experiencing, and it should be a space where maybe you're building a big building for commercial profit, but you're giving a bit back because – that's, that, that makes the city nicer for everyone when you're not just walking past, you know, a big curtain wall glazing, but you're inviting, like, you know, here's some space here that you can come and sit or you can walk through and have some shade on a hot day um, or, or warmth on a storm and shelter. So um, it's, it's a very nice part of the tool and it was a lot of the elements of it were things that were previously just in the Green Star Communities tool because I guess that was something that was addressing these things on a bigger scale but every building can you know do a little bit towards that
0: Caroline Criado Perez writes in Invisible Women data bias in a world designed for men that the result of this deeply male dominated culture is that the male experience male perspective has come to be seen as universal, while the female experience, that of half the global population after all, is seen as, well, niche. Invisible Women, the book, highlights the importance of female representation in developing a more inclusive world. Can you reflect on that nexus between gender equity and environmental sustainability?
1: It's a very good book and I think worthwhile for anybody working in any kind of design space to read because I think it's not just like she's written it from the point of view of where women are missing I think there's many 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 kinds of people we miss when we design and that's important if we're designing whatever it is for those people so one of the massive takeaways probably two takeaways from that book the first one is to think about who is the end user and what we're doing and do we understand what their point of view might be. And I think about a parallel to this and when we build a building, as, as contractors, we absolutely relish the opportunity to be involved early because we have a bias and we know how things are to build. And if we can be involved, right, 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 upfront then there's issues that we think we could you know help solve if we were there and I think this is you know we've got to think of these biases as actually value so do you want to you know create something that isn't going to be and and she gives many many examples of this too where there's been failures in design because they haven't consulted the people that are actually going to use it so that was maybe the the big thing about really thinking when you're doing something has the right have you you consulted with the right people and understood different biases which and and that's valuable the second thing that I took away from this book was to challenge some of these conventions especially when they don't make sense and sort of dig a little deeper about why they are there in the first place so she talks about temperature in office buildings being designed to be 22 degrees or 21 23 degrees kind of thing and that this this convention, which is written into leases, to change it is incredibly difficult. And basically, if a a building does want to change it, they're in breach of a lease. But the whole thing started from research in the 1960s, based on a very, um, I think, pretty generic sort of 180 centimetre man who was in the military in the States and was wearing a three-piece suit. And I don't think that the workforce today reflects that at all. And we know that there's always like, you know, any building manager will tell you temperature is the thing that they get the most complaints about. And is that any wonder when we are you know, potentially got half a population that are women, maybe another 25% of the population that are are culturally different to um, a Western man of 180 centimetres, and why we're still sort of continuing to persist with this strange design convention when even now we have so much more information that could inform us to do this in a much smarter way. It's just one that really, really frustrates me. Um, and we're starting to see some pretty good changes. We've got a couple of projects now which have not used that. Um, it's very, very new and it's caused, you know, already everyone's like, why? Why isn't it the way it should be? And um, it's you know, trying to, I guess, educate everyone on how to, why, why actually it shouldn't be that way in the first place and that um, what, what it's going to be is actually going to suit uh, a modern workplace a lot better. But it's really, I hope that one changes soon. So I think to challenge like anything strange like that, and I know in lighting um, standards as well, there's lots of, um, you know, young the young and old are kind of left out of that. She doesn't talk about that, but... Um, that's, you know, light, lighting is designed for people in their 20s pretty much and, and young people, and, and, but, but we use those conventions to design schools in old people's homes. So I, I think these standards that we design by, like, yes, they're a nice, quick shortcut, but they're giving us um, perverse outcomes, and that's because they're disconnected from the information about where they came from. We just see it as that's the standard, not this is the standard
0: for people
1: who are 30 years old. With great eyesight.
0: Yeah, it is an amazing area, and I think that book um, blew me away in that these things that we just um, don't even think about—they're just, as you say, they're the standards—and actually, um, yeah, there's a huge amount of um, bias involved in in that. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report highlighted the impact of the construction industry, especially with regard to global carbon emissions. You've described this idea of the contractor as the last link in the chain. From the contractor perspective, how can we rethink our current practices and what needs to happen to facilitate uptake of more sustainability practices by industry?
1: I've revised my position about us being the last link in the chain. We're the middle of the chain. We're the last link. We're we're very important because what we do is the last thing that gets physically done to the building to enable it to be a, a good building but with this particular statistic we're talking about the whole of the building life and so it's critically important that we are ensuring that buildings are operated efficiently but from our contractor point of view we we look at a couple of things like in the early stages of a project we're, we're starting to look at things like um, if, if the design team haven't already and there's gas coming to the project can we can we get rid of that and have a 100 electric building and that then forwarded label. Um, all 100% renewable energy to be supplied and have a fossil free project. Um, we are also looking at embodied carbon and construction, so undertaking life cycle assessments to look at the whole amount of carbon over the whole lifetime of the building, but then just narrowing our focus down to um, what we call cradle to completed construction. So, where the materials are coming from and getting the information on the carbon associated with them and whether we can make choices there to reduce embodied carbon and we have a client that specifically asks for that that's an even that's that's the best way to drive that also this one we like to do because it's a great cost saving but to look at the structure and the design and see if it can be done any more efficiently we often will looking for, you know, is there an opportunity to, to have a more efficient structure and reduce materials and structures where those embodied embody carbon um, in construction is, I think around 80, 85% of it is coming from your structure, the concrete and steel aluminium um, in the building. So that's where the focus has to be in reducing embodied carbon. And then so another thing that Neighbours has had an impact on is that That is something that the contractor is obliged to deliver. So we actually stay really pretty involved in that first year of a building's operation to confirm that everything is being run properly. And you never know what what might not be quite right if you're not looking at it. And it just gives us that chance to sort of look at the building through all the seasons and see that the programming that you've put in to, to make sure that the building is being cooled properly is working, that if you've got lights that are meant to... Turn off in the car park when there's no one there. That they're doing that, and that things that turn on in the morning are turning on at the right time in the morning, not maybe four hours before they need to, or any little quirks. So um, that's a really, really important way um, of making sure that the you know we we model buildings to see how much energy they're going to use, and to, to sort of track how much we're using against that model, and make sure that we're not wildly off the mark and have made a mistake somewhere. I think. In terms of carbon emissions, those are probably our priorities as contractors.
0: Speaking in the um, context of COVID and trying to think, I guess, aspirationally, how could we use potential COVID economic stimulus and what opportunities do you see for how to best utilise this investment to assist a shift towards a more sustainable industry? If we've got the chance
1: to now... Be, be focusing on doing more construction it's a bit of an intervention point so I think it should be a, more of a priority than ever to be using that as a chance to improve sustainability and health and well-being in buildings um, and I guess tie the awareness of you've got a chance to do some more construction right now and this should be done in a way that's really set up to support the future so you've got maybe an old building and you've got some extra um, incentive to to spend money on it and refurbish it well this might be the last time that happens for the next 20 years maybe so now and and it's got 20 years ahead of it that it could become a much much more sustainable project so um, I, I think it would be really good if this was tied towards like you know preparing buildings for the future as well a lot of lot of what's going to be built is built and um, we have recently had the opportunity to renovate two heritage buildings that were like pre anything services they've I think you had electric lighting and that was about it. So to to bring those buildings up to the same standard as others in the CBD in terms of being five-star green star buildings, five-star neighbours-rated buildings, highly, highly efficient heritage buildings with every kind of constraint imaginable. But we kind of knew that this was going to be the big opportunity to intervene in that job. Um, and it had to be set up for the future. We don't want it to be a um, you know something that in Five years' time becomes one of these stranded assets that nobody wants to buy or touch because it's just so out of date with what what the the world needs. Um, I think you have to be very, yeah, now is probably just that little bit of um, carefulness about what you're doing. And And for me, what is interesting in buildings is that they're around so, so long that we kind of have to be more measured in what we're doing when we're putting them together because it's not that you know it's not fashion it's not going to change next year or the year after and you can just restart it and and get better there's a lot of stuff in the building if you set it up now that's how it's going to be for a really long time and there you know without a lot more money invested to I don't know knock it down and that's a bad sustainability result as well so um I, I would encourage anyone looking at doing something in construction just to have that kind of awareness of what they're you know maybe whether they're going to sell it next year or if they're going to hold on to it that there's got to be this consideration of how long that building's going to be there and whether it's going to be worthwhile and valued in, in 15 years time
0: yeah and I think that's an important reflection that um you know, Obviously, in this context, economic stimulus is, is very important, but it does need to be balanced with this awareness of making sure that it is set up in the right way to ensure that it yeah, lasts the distance. As a sustainability leader, you have the opportunity to help set the agenda for what we need to be focusing on in the construction industry. What are your main sustainability priorities for the next year and next five years?
1: So... Something I think we have to be aware of in sustainability is that we can't know what might be happening next year or in five years. You've got to be open to embrace change. So I think back five years and some of the, the things that I work on the most today, well, I didn't even know about well five years ago, it might have been like just coming out. And that's that's massive now, health and well being in buildings has become so much bigger. Um, so I think that openness to expecting things to change and always being prepared to look at how your project can adapt that rather than kind of shutting it out it's it's better to just see if, is there a chance that we can wrap this into what we're doing right now that's a priority because um like i said in the last um last question it's thinking about the future and if there's little things that are creeping in now you can almost guarantee they're going to be quite big things in a couple of a couple of years i think one way to to make sure that you're being a part and and able to bring these things into your building is to really participate in um, the conversation. So at Bill, I'm part of four people in our sustainability team and we are always looking to connect with the other businesses and the Green Building Council and International Well Building Institute about what they're up to and, and connecting and finding out where they see sustainability moving because that way we're, we're closer to the change as well and it becomes you know something that we can bring into what we're working on without it being you know a big shock when suddenly the standards change so that's another area that we like to stay really really close to and I think the inclusivity side of things is important too so when I was in New Zealand we used to work um, at the Green Building Council there a lot on really small schools and there were very low budget projects but it always felt like they were quite important to be getting that sustainability design and um, and operations into. I guess that was something that was quite a focus for the organisation and I would like to see more of that as well so maybe just where they there are spaces that and kinds of sectors that aren't perhaps as engaged in sustainability formally to, to think about how they can really be looking at rating tools like Green Star and maybe um, Well as well, because I think they'd get a lot of value out of using them. And I know, like Well, for instance, have all sorts of uh, incentives and discounts for those kinds, like, you know, any kind of government project or, or educational project, because they also see that as a, as a need. It's something that's been achieving these rating tools for a long time, being really you know, premium end real estate. And we need to actually focus on some of the other sectors. It isn't just going to happen.
0: Yeah, I think there's some great ideas there. And I really hope that that happens, that we see um, that uptake more in places sectors like education, Circling back to the theme of female representation in environmental leadership, do you have any advice to those who are striving to make a difference in the field?
1: I think my advice is to really believe in what you're doing, have a lot of conviction, and that translates when you're trying to bring other people along on that journey with you and when you're, you know, Trying to advocate for some of the changes that you're trying to make, if if you believe in it, and um, then then that gives them confidence to believe in it too. And I think the other thing is not to be worried about the answer being no. Um, that's something I've certainly seen a lot of from my boss. He just shoots ideas out there and um, doesn't doesn't mind if the answer is no. It's about just bringing bringing it up all the time, keeping it on the table, and. So that's something I don't worry about now. I just put the idea on the table. If the answer's no, that's fine. It's brought brought people's awareness to it and it might be considered down the line and it might not be so so foreign next time they hear it. So I think it's it's worthwhile.
0: Finally, I'd like to end on a question about inspiration. If you could name one thing that has been instrumental in shaping the kind of sustainability leader you are today, it could be a book, a place, a person, an idea or an experience. What would that be? Well, I think it's people.
1: And you learn learn little bits off different people all the time. But Someone who, as a leader that I think is incredible is Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister in New Zealand. And I, you know, I think of the way that she leads and um, brings people with her. And I, I think also um, her having a baby and being Prime Minister is amazing. So I think, as, a, as in terms of someone who really inspires me, and I think has an amazing and also quite different leadership style. She
0: she would be a big inspiration for me. I'm so glad you said Jacinda Ardern. That's she really is an inspiration. Claire, that has been such an interesting and varied discussion. Thank you so much for joining me today and for being so generous with your time. Design Conscious is a podcast created by me, Sarah Lawler, as part of the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, supported by NAWIC.